If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we are. It's more where we're picking it up here together as we continue in worship. We're going to be picking it up there in verse 11. So when you get there, you can, you can just hold for a second. What I want us to do here, and, and just as we continue in worship, um, is just to step into this together this morning. Like maybe just really and truly be here, be present, uh, committing ourselves to this time, committing ourselves to being present here with God, really looking to the Holy Spirit to do something, to do something for us today. Like as we come here thirsty, that, that He would feed us. As we come here, as we come here scared, or we come here weak, or we come here defeated, as we come here anxious, as we come here whatever, how, how, however it is that we come here today, maybe we're coming him, maybe we're coming in here today with too much pride. Like maybe you're the opposite. You're like, man, I'm not downcast. I'm awesome. Maybe that's how you came in here today. Um, however it is, my prayer all week has been that, that the Lord would just meet us here today. Um, so would you stand with me now? Stand with me as we look as we look together, like purposefully and intentionally to God in His Word to us. This is it's Ephesians chapter 2, starting there in verse 11. And we're just going to read through verse 13. And actually, I'm going to start in verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here and to be present with you, to be here with your people. Or wherever we came from this week, you've brought us to this place. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear you, give us eyes to see you. Lord, help us to know you more. Lord, I pray that you would change us. I pray that you change me through your word. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing a, uh, like a series. We call them series. I'm not sure why we do that, honestly. We're just going through a book of the Bible. I don't know, maybe it's just hip to call it a series, so whatever. Anyway, we're in a series that we've called Vintage Community. And by, and by vintage, what we mean in that is, is something that is not new, right? That's, that's what vintage is. Like, like not brand new, but something that's sort of old. Um, and yet, it's not, like it's not just old, it, it's it's old and it's still of great value. That's what vintage means. That's what we mean by that. And I mentioned that today just as a way to sort of, sort of reminding us of why, like I want you to know the heart behind why we chose to go through Ephesians. Like we didn't just throw the Bible on the ground and go through whatever it was open to. We intentionally picked this book. Um, and we did that because as a, as a, as a local church, right, as a, and, and really as a new local church, something that's pretty young, young something that's new. We're, 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 still, like, we're still pretty new at this, okay? Like, we're not, we have not been in this for a long time. It's, we chose it so that we as a church, which, by the way, is just a, it, 
the church is just a name for, for, for those who are called out. The, 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 the word that you see in the New Testament is the word ecclesia. It, it means the called out ones, the assembly of God's people. And, and what we want to do is a local expression of that, right? As, as a local gathered expression of that is we want to recognize and remember that we, even in our youth, we're not a brand new thing. That, that's, I guess that's a long way of getting to just that. Like, I know it seems new and we're in a weird little warehouse space and, and it's a, like, it seems very juvenile on some Sundays, but the truth is we're, we're an extension of, this is what we are, we're a continuation of a, a contemporary expression of an ancient reality. Okay, we, we, are, we are a branch on the true vine that is Christ and, and the vintage community that is His church. That's what we are. That's what you're caught up in right now. And what we saw at the end of the passage last week, there in verse 10, if you look at that, what we saw is Paul like speaking to another particular branch of that vine, another local communion of the saints. And what we saw was him reminding them that what Jesus has done for them in the past, all right, has a real and true impact on not just what they do, but who they are in the present, It's what we keep calling this new creation identity in Christ. And so he said that we are his workmanship, created, right? Not merely improved, not merely renovated, but created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this new creation identity that we have in Christ is is, not this passive thing. It's, It's not this... It's not a boring or static religious association, right? But it's a dynamic and living and intentional walk with Jesus in the world. And because of that new creation identity in Christ, because of that life of good works to walk in now, the problem that we have is that the world in which we walk is still broken. Like it's still divided. It's still still groaning. And we know this, okay? Like you, like you know this from your own life. Like if you have come to know the Lord, you know this reality that you come to Christ, you surrender your life and call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. You trust in Jesus for your eternal life, however you want to phrase that. And he took, his, he took your sin upon himself, right? Paid your debt at the cross that he suffered and bled and died in your place, And you believe that, right? And you rest in that. It's what it means to be a Christian. It happens in in unique and different ways for every every single one of us. Some of us are young when the Spirit opens our eyes to our sin and the kindness of Jesus that leads us to repentance and faith. Some of us are young when that happens. Some of us are older when that happens. Each is called according to to His purpose, right? Uh, And so it's not our timing, but it's His. And this is beautiful, right? This is the stunning thing that humbles all of us before our Lord and Savior. It's a picture of what God has done for the broken, hurting sinner. But what we know and what we see and experience is that even though we have this new creation identity in Christ, we still find ourselves in a fallen creation world. And so Paul, what he's doing here is he's pointing us back again. He says that we are his workmanship. He says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Now look at verse 11. Therefore. (laughs) You see, therefore means because of that, right? When you say therefore, there's something before that that leads into what's 
coming next. He says that we are his workmanship. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, we need to stop there for just a second because that, that verse actually gets kind of weird there for a second, right? I mean, it, it, it really is. It, like, we're just kind of cruising along with Paul, talking about redemption, talking about reconciliation, these big, these big things. And, and, then, and then somehow we're dropped into circumcision again, right? Just kind of out of nowhere. It feels like it comes out, out of nowhere. But if we consider what he's saying here, if we really take this, con- this passage within its context, what we'll see is that, is that Paul is setting the stage for us. He's setting the stage for us to live out this commission of Christ in what is a fiercely divided world. And we remember that the first part of this chapter, if you were just last week, we remember that it focused really on the whole of mankind, okay? We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so there's this difference at conversion, there's something that happens in a believer at conversion. It's not just a, a new thing that we say. It's not just a new shirt we wear. There's a new transformed life there in Christ. And there's a difference between the Christian and the world because God being rich in mercy, right, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. So it doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or, or what language you speak or what neighborhood you grew up in or, or any of those things. It, what matters is that with God, there is no distinction, right? There are no second tier sons and daughters of God. So what we see in Galatians 3, that before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So we were captives. This is how we were. We talk about that. We sing about that, right? Uh, before faith in Jesus, we were imprisoned. Before uh, long my imprisoned spirit lay. But he goes on to say that as we were baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. And so now there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here's what the church is supposed to be. The church is meant to be distinct from the world in this very visible unity. And part of that unity stems from an honest understanding of where we come from. And what Paul is saying to this church, mostly made up of Gentile converts to the faith, and as a means of strengthening them for the journey ahead, is that even though the salvation of Jewish, Jewish believers was was an impossible redemption only accomplished through Christ. What he's saying is that these Gentiles' situation was actually quite worse. And he gives us five reasons. So look at verse 12 with me. He says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. One of the things that James Montgomery Boyce uh, points out in this passage is that, is that when Paul introduces the contrast between Gentiles and Jews, he seems to make light of the labels the Jews themselves use for this distinction. And I know it might seem ridiculous, but evidently back in that time, it was actually part of their normal vernacular to call someone the uncircumcised. Now that would not play well today at all, right? I mean, if you start, and so kids, like don't, don't, don't. Like just, 
don't, okay? Just for the sake of everyone in the room, don't. But this was part of what they talked about. They actually took pride in this thing that was meant to humble them before their covenant God. You've got these Jewish people running around calling themselves with pride the circumcision. Like, that's a weird bumper sticker, right? That one does not fit. Our our t-shirts say volunteer on the back. Can you imagine if we walked around a t-shirt said the circumcision? I mean, like that's just not, even though we actually believe that in baptized, we're circumcised into Christ, right? In faith, but we're not. That's not a a t-shirt idea for the record. That one's not on the list at all. They took pride in the sign of the covenant rather than humility, rather than the humility it was meant to bring. And the first thing he mentions, here's what he says, here's what Paul says, is that they were separated from Christ. And here's what we need to do, because a lot of us are church people, so I want to be careful here that we don't jump too far down the theological rabbit hole. Because when we hear separated from Christ, we immediately jump to the, the spiritual idea of reconciliation. Some of you are like ready to go there already. Nope, I've been reconciled to Christ, I'm no longer separated. And yes, and amen, but that's not what Paul's getting at here, right? What we see here is the reconciliation to God, right? Is not a, that's not a unique, that's not unique to the Gentile problem, okay? That's a universal need. Just as every human in here requires food and water to live, every human requires redemption and reconciliation accomplished by Jesus and applied to us by grace through faith in order to be alive. That's a universal need. But what Paul is after here is the fact that Gentiles didn't even know that they needed to be saved. That's what he's getting at right there. They didn't even know. Like so many of our friends, and if you think, like so many of our friends and so many of our neighbors today, the first century Gentiles were blind to this need for salvation. As Paul writes in Romans 1, they were futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He says that they, here's what he says. He says that they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Like the descendants of Cain in Genesis 4, they're outside of the presence of the Lord dwelling in the land of Nod, what he calls East of Eden. Os Guinness has said this, and the quote's actually in your worship guide and the discussion questions, because I think, it's, I think it's really important for us to think about it. Os Guinness says this, East of Eden, there is always something and inescapably something missing. East of Eden, there is always inescapably something missing. That something is the Savior. And since they don't know they need Him, they're separated from Christ. And because they're separated from Christ in this way, here's the next one, they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Like the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, who wanted to know where they ought to worship, the Gentiles, they didn't know the story of God's redemptive plan. Like the world today, they looked for another place, right? They looked for another pattern. They looked for another ritual, another behavior to adopt in order to, to make themselves right, to find, to find purpose and meaning. That's really what they're looking for. How many of our friends, again, how many of our friends and family, how many of our neighbors are still looking for the right diet, 
still looking for the right exercise regimen or the right social cause, just desperate to be a part of something, anything that matters. I see more aggressive evangelism for diet and workout plans on Facebook, more dramatic appeals to political ideology and affiliation and party line than I ever see for the sake of the gospel. And by the way, this is primarily among those who claim the blood of Christ on Sunday. But what I see is us waving a thousand other banners during the week. Down in 2.19, this is down in Ephesians 2.19, Paul's going to say, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, so yes, there's this very real and tangible reconciliation with God and Christ. We are all of us individually united with Christ by faith. But, but, but what Paul, okay, what he seems to be getting after here, what he's focusing on, is not that sort of rugged individual Western faith, but, but he's drawing us into this deep and really beautiful vintage community of the sons and daughters of the king. And he keeps on going in this, you see. By, by looking at the past reality, we gain a greater insight into our present lives. Look back at verse 12 again. The next thing we see, and we need to remember, is that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. You see, a covenant is always, here it is, a covenant is always and irrevocably relational, right? Like a man and a woman standing before their friends and family, before the Lord, making a covenant in marriage. All covenants are necessarily relational. He's going to say in 3.6 that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you want to, if you want to cheat ahead, go ahead and circle 3.6 in Ephesians, right? We're going to get there before two line, put a star beside that because this all connects. See, that's a covenant thing. That's what the promise is. Just like we talked about with the kids, a promise is a covenant. Back in 1.3, we were told that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Right, right? He didn't say He's blessed us in Christ with some spiritual blessings. Or He didn't say that we're blessed in Christ with a few spiritual blessings. He said every spiritual blessing. Back when, uh, back when the Lord first brought Claire into our family, it was holiday season. And, and I don't know if we've ever told this story. Yeah, Claire came into our family. It was like Thanksgiving time. We were basically like, where are you going to spend Thanksgiving? And she was like, I don't really have a place to spend Thanksgiving. And so Laurie and I are driving down the road. She can verify this. I, I cry easily. So it's like not a surprise that like I immediately start like weeping as I get to the car. And I look over and Laurie's weeping too. And I'm like, oh man, now we really have a problem for both crying. Then the kids just start crying because we're an emotional. Anyway, whatever. It's what happened. Uh, it was Christmas time. My wife, y'all, Laurie goes absolutely nuts at Christmas time. All right, we're, we're like, and, and to, to know that we're already starting with the Christmas music. So don't judge us too hard. I tried to resist for years, but it's really a pretty futile effort. And so I've just given in and like whatever, man. We are into it now. But the sleigh ride song, when it's like hundred degrees and ninety percent humidity, does feel off a little bit. So we're Christmas people, but Claire wasn't used to that at all. That was a foreign thing to her. And the truth, of the, re- the truth of the matter is that that first Christmas was very, very overwhelming for her. She didn't know what it was like to have someone just pour out this love and joy on her like Laurie did. 
It's like each, each meal together, each gift under the tree, each family member of ours welcoming her in and saying, yep, you're with us, was another reminder to her that you are officially one of us. You are not alone. You are a daughter. It is a covenant promise that has been made. And God's covenant promise is simple. It's 2 Corinthians 6.16. Are you ready for this? In 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul looks back to Leviticus chapter 26. And here's what he says. God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's that. That's about as simplistic a version as you can get, and I didn't have to make it up, right? That's what God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what God has done for us. In Christ, he has adopted us into the family. He's put our name on the stocking. He's hung it beside the chimney. There is a gift under the tree with our name on it. This is what he does for us in Christ. No longer orphans. We are sons and daughters. And it's not, you will be my person. I want to point that out. He doesn't say, I will be your God and you will be my person. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's always, you will be my people. You see, that's who we are collectively. We are his people. Next, he reminds us that we were having no hope. So we were hopeless. That's what that means, that we were hopeless. But now in Christ, we above all people have every reason to be hopeful. And and let me say that again and then qualify it. We above all people have every reason to be hopeful. Now, I'm not saying that's what we are. I wish I could say that. Like, I wish I could say, man, the church that I know are the most hope-filled, ridiculously hopeful people on the planet. Like, they, like, the, like the building could collapse, and they're going to go, God must have something better for us. Get in a car wreck? I guess it was just time for that thing to die. Like, I don't know how that plays out. Like, I just wish that, like, I wish above all things for the church, and I'm not just talking about Rivercrest, I mean the church militant in the world today. If militant scares you, that just means that we are mobile and alive right now. I wish that I could say that we were fighting the battle with hope and not fear. But I just don't see it. Like I don't see it in me. I see how easily I drift into fear. I see how easily I drift into anxiety. See how easy I drift over into the lane of like self-preservation. And I see that in the people around me. But we should be the most hopeful people that we know because we know the hope to which he has called us, right? We know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, the reality is that in Christ, we we know how the story ends. In Christ, we know where the journey leads. And if you know me, here's, here, I'm going to tell you this right now. If you know me, you know that I very rarely will quote this verse because it's been so hijacked by like, by like I don't know, by branches of the church. Right? It's been so hijacked and misapplied that I think it's gotten lost in the shuffle. But we are in Christ. We have this Romans 8.28 understanding that for those who love God, all things will work together for good. Like, for those who are called according to his purpose, right? So it's not just unqualified working for good. It's good because it's God's purpose for us. 
And we should know that. That whatever life throws our way. And so where does this road lead us, right? The road of hopefulness leads us, leads us right to Jesus. Again, it will not be easy. And nobody ever said it was an easy path. In the world, you will have trouble. I'm pretty sure Bernie prayed that earlier, and we didn't even plan this. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation. But what does Jesus say? It's okay. You, can, you know it. What does Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. What? They cannot hear you on the live stream. I will just tell you, you're going to have to say it louder than that for the people out there to hear you. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. What? Like you didn't even, I didn't have to say it. Like you just know that. Here's the deal. All we need, all we need is the empty tomb to be overwhelmed with unceasing hope. Because now (laughs) we are with God, right? We used to be without God in the world, but now we aren't. Now we are with God. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now are we reconciled. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Augustine famously said in his confessions that you have made us for yourself. Here's his confession to God. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And what does God say to his people in Deuteronomy 31.6? The author of Hebrews reminds us of this great promise, this covenant promise. God says what? I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Now, do you hear that? I want to just confess, I will leave you and I will forsake you. I hate that about me. I wish above all things as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend that that was not true of me. But I will grow tired. I will get old. I've told many of you at various times, I will be here for you as long as I can be, but I, can't, I cannot even begin to promise more than 100 years. All right? Like the best, I can, the best I can offer anybody in this room is like 59. 59 more years. That's it. After that, I'm going to need you to be there for me. All right, that's all I'm going to ask. At, at, at 100, if I'm still the one who has to take care of you, something has gone horribly wrong. But eventually, I will fail you. It doesn't matter how committed I am. It doesn't matter how much I love you. It doesn't matter how much I want to be there for you. And by the way, the same thing can be said from every spouse to one another. It doesn't matter how much we want to. There is no perfect love between any two human beings because it will all eventually fail. Every one of us will meet the same end eventually. But that's not true with Jesus. You see, we're saved by his life and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. He's the only one who can say that to us. For those who are tired and weary, I will never leave you nor forsake you. For those who are troubled and overwhelmed, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. For those who are hurting, for those who are, like for those who are sitting here right now hiding grief, for those who are right now hiding anxiety, ter- terrified by the future, overcome by despair, fearful and nervous and anxious, for those who are sitting here right now feeling alone, even in the presence of your brothers and sisters in faith, and I know there's those in here, for those of you sitting in here feeling alone, look at what Jesus says. Look at what the creator and sustainer of all things, says to you as his son, as his daughter, as his beloved child, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And why? 
because Jesus was forsaken in our place. And listen, I love verse 13. I mean, if it, I, I, I can't tell you, I can't forcefully and authoritatively tell you to circle that or underline or highlight that, but, but I really wish you would. Verse 13 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It was the verse that, and here's the reason, it's because that's the verse that God used to speak to my little choir boy of a life when I was about 13 years old, and it opened my eyes to the fact that I was far off from God. When I thought that I knew best, when I was sure that my account was good enough that I'd stacked the deck in my favor, listen to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's a gospel verse. Like every once in a while we just need a gospel verse to quote to somebody, that's one right there. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Everything in this passage has been a description of what it means to be far off. Everything, every speck of it. Far off is separated from Christ. Far off is alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Far off is strangers to the covenants of promise. Far off is having no hope. Far off is without God in the world. But listen to me, that's not us anymore. That's not us anymore because now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You used to be separated, now you're reconciled. You used to be alienated and now you're united. You used to be strangers and now you're family. You used to be hopeless and now you're hopeful. You used to be without God and now, even now, you're with God. And even more important, here's is even more importantly, He's with you. And he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Because you, listen, child of the living God, who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm going to do it. I've told myself I wouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it. Amen? Thank you. Yeah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth and the beauty and the glory that no matter how fast we try to run away from you or how well we learn to hide, there is no distance too great, no speed too fast, no hiding place so secret that you cannot and will not come and find us. And the darkest nights of our soul, you remind us of who we are. You shine the light of Christ, who even though we were once far off, came to us and brought us near by his blood. Jesus, help us to remember you this week. Holy Spirit, come and move in our hearts to embrace you more fully and completely. If we are sitting here right now thinking, no, I just don't know. Lord, I pray that you would come and you would, that you'd remove all doubt. Use the people around us to point us to who you are and to your glory, to that inheritance that we have in Christ. And I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would come and make us alive. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.